Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's incredible value-packed podcast episode is brought to you by my friends at Kez's Kitchen, a proud family-owned business that started in 1991 in Kez's Kitchen here in Australia. Today, we're showcasing the Kez's Kitchen Brownie Bars, the perfect anytime snack made from natural ingredients. Available in three delicious flavors, these all-natural and protein boost bars taste ridiculously good. The Kez's Kitchen Brownie Bars are available at all supermarkets in the health food aisle and kezs.com.au. That's K-E-Z-S.com.au. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. On today's episode, we have an expert on endometriosis, who is Cindy Dabroska, who is a registered dietitian and she has a Master of Applied Nutrition and is the founder of the Supportive Endo RD. Cindy's passion comes from supporting endo warriors who, much like herself, have said enough is enough to debilitating, life-altering symptoms of endometriosis. Cindy has been blessed to support countless women in her nutrition counseling practice through a functional medicine and root cause approach to endometriosis. As a registered dietitian and endo warrior, she prides herself on being an ally to and a resource for the endometriosis community. In today's episode, we discuss what endometriosis is, how it's diagnosed, food and nutrition to support endometriosis, whether gluten or dairy-free is actually needed for endo warriors, the holistic whole body approach to treating endometriosis, gut health and endo, natural pain relief options, and finally, tips for endometriosis and infertility. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode today and please don't forget to leave me a positive rating or review in the Purple Apple Podcast app. Thanks so much, guys. Welcome, Cindy, to our podcast today. I'm really excited to have you on. Yeah, I'm so happy and excited to be here. Wonderful. Well, I love starting this podcast by asking our guests how they got started in the area that they specialize in. So what made you interested in this area of endometriosis? So much like many other healthcare professionals who enter a very specific space, I do have a personal connection to endometriosis as I have endometriosis. So very early on in my dietetics training, I just knew I would enter the space of medical nutrition therapy and uh, diet for endometriosis, because I know it's been the most powerful and the most effective for me. And diet is truly a gem when it comes to supporting a body with endometriosis. So that's really the short story. And that makes me so happy to hear because that was the reason that I got into the field of nutrition and dietetics as well, because I actually originally wanted to be a physio first and then a doctor. So my whole reason for being on this earth was always to help people. And I always remember thinking, you know what, if I can help someone purely using the power of food, like that's incredible. A, because I love food (laughs) and B, because, you know, we don't even need to sort of touch some medications or that sort of thing. We can do so much using the power of, of real food, which has been around on this earth for I don't know, what, centuries? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Wonderful. So in terms of endometriosis, we have a lot of listeners who I guess I'm sure most people are familiar with the term, but let's start with the basics. What exactly is endometriosis if you had to give us like a definition? 
Endometriosis is this condition where tissue that is similar, but not the same as that which lines the uterus, grows outside of the uterus. And uh, it responds to the same hormonal stimulus as the uterine lining. Um, So here we're talking about that drop in estrogen progesterone leading up to the period and the prostaglandins that stimulate the uterine lining to shed. And so these endometrial-like adhesions respond to these stimulus and they behave similarly. So they begin to bleed, but because they have nowhere to go, they kind of get trapped in the abdomen and, you know, elsewhere we've now found endometrial-like tissue pretty much all over the body, they form the scar tissue. And then this tissue can adhere organs together. It can cause really debilitating pain, infertility, and really the list goes on in terms of other symptoms that it can contribute to or cause. And is there a reason, I guess, for that tissue being outside of the uterus? Obviously, this isn't a what we would call quote unquote normal. It's not supposed to be there, is it? Yeah, no, it's absolutely not supposed to be there. And it's a really great question. And I think research is still digging into what the possible answer is to that question. We don't really know how it gets there. There's a couple of theories. But for now, it's it's not known why it happens. Uh, we know that there is a genetic link. If somebody in your family has endometriosis, particularly in your immediate family, you're about six times more likely to develop endometriosis. So we know there's that genetic link. Uh, We know there are some dietary components uh, that potentially contribute to endometriosis risk. But in terms of like the deep physiology of it or pathophysiology, we don't, you know, we don't really have good answers there, unfortunately. Yeah. So watch this space well into the future, hey? There might be some exciting research coming out. I hope so. I really do. (laughs) And in terms of, I guess, a diagnosis for endometriosis, is it based on just where that tissue was found, obviously being outside of the uterus, or are there a few other tools that the medical profession might use to diagnose somebody? So the gold standard right now for diagnosis of endometriosis is through a laparoscopy. And the main reason for this is because that tissue actually has to be biopsied. So for example, when I had my surgery in 2018, a part of the tissue that was biopsied on my left abdominal wall actually turned out to be scar tissue. So not uh, not exactly endometrial-like tissue, but then everywhere else that it was found, um, it was endometrial-like tissue. Some specialists that I'm connecting with now, some surgeons, some doctors, they are claiming that it can be diagnosed through MRI or special types of ultrasound. But the question remains, like, you can't biopsy it through these methods. So is it really endometriosis that you're seeing or is it something else? So as of right now, formal diagnosis, you must get a laparoscopy. Yeah. Okay. So there's no blood results or blood tests that we can do to point us towards endometriosis, or that might help, I guess, to sort of point you down that pathway, but you do need the laparoscopy to actually get that formal diagnosis in the end. There is a blood test that they're saying, if you test positive, there's a higher association with endometriosis risk, but it's not definitive. So not everybody who has Uh, that particular, you know, marker come through on the blood, you know, it's not definitive that you 100% have endometriosis. Unfortunately, the science is just not there yet in terms of the blood, uh, blood work. And then in terms of, I guess, if somebody at home was listening, thinking, you know, I get a lot of pain and that sort of thing, maybe I have endometriosis. What are some other common symptoms? I think everyone realizes that pain is probably the big one for most people. What are some other common symptoms that might point someone towards making an appointment with their doctor to do some further investigations in case they, they might have it as well? Pain is a big one, but it's not just pain because I think pain 
is normalized to some degree, even though it's absolutely not normal. But with endo, we're talking about like truly debilitating pain, pain that prevents you from going to work or school, laying immobile on the floor of your bathroom or bedroom, turning white as a ghost, vomiting, fainting. This is how severe the pain can get when it comes to endo. Um, infertility is also a common symptom. We know that about 50% of all infertility cases are related to endo, and then 30% of people with endo will struggle to conceive. And sometimes in those people, that's the first symptom they see, actually, of endo. Mm. There's a lot of bowel concerns around endometriosis, so a lot of constipation, diarrhea, IBS-like symptoms. Nerve pain is common. Bladder pain and interstitial cystitis, these are also very commonly found in endo. Pain with intercourse a very common symptom with endo. Heavy bleeding, fatigue, these are all common. And then a more, I guess you can say, indirect symptom could be mental health, right? Because when you're not able to go to work like a normal person or see your friends or make plans and keep to those plans like you know you would expect, you can start to feel very alone and, you know, there's no cure for the disease currently. And so uh, mental health is something that I think deserves a little bit more attention in this space too, because of all the different spaces where endometriosis can really affect uh, a person. Mm, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And we've talked a lot about mental health in this podcast and I'm very, very pro in terms of linking in with other health professionals, such as psychologists and therapists as well, because any condition can be so debilitating, but particularly one like endometriosis, can't it? Absolutely, 100%. And I think it uh, deserves way more attention, really. Yeah, which is why we're so lucky to have you on today, Cindy. I'm honestly, I'm honored that you're giving us all of your knowledge because you made a really important um, distinction between the pain is sometimes normalized. I've had a friend who had endometriosis and she just thought that that was period pain. She's just like, oh, for like, you know, three or four, five days out of the month, I just can't get out of bed. I call in sick. I sit there with a heat back crying in my bed. And I just remember thinking like, I've had period pain before, but I've, it's it's never been that level or maybe, you know, once a year or something, it's quite bad. Other days it's, it's, you know, sort of manageable. So I think that real distinction between what is normal when it comes to period pain is probably a big, I guess, red flag for some people as well. Absolutely. And, uh, Unfortunately, I feel like this space hasn't gotten a lot of attention, right? So like even the other day I posted on uh, on my feed on Instagram about heavy flow and I got a number of comments about, I had no idea this wasn't normal. But, you know, if it's affecting your daily life, if you have to put a towel down when you sit on a couch or you're producing clots that are, are larger than a quarter or, you know, you're bleeding so much that you're becoming iron deficient. Like all of these things are connected and they're absolutely not normal. I mean, it, it's possible that it's your norm, right? And, and that's a possibility, but for most people it's, it's not. And so a lot of these things need, in my opinion, more attention couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I always say if this podcast just helps one person, just one person somewhere in the world, then we've done a great job today, right? Absolutely. And I'm going to throw a curly question at you, Cindy. In terms of <laughs> heavy flow, how would you define that? Because again, someone might be sitting at home thinking, well, you know, my period's quite heavy, but that's normal. So let's normalize what normal is. So would you say changing a pad or a tampon every one hour or two hours would be considered heavy flow? What would, I guess, your sort of definition of the word heavy flow be or something that might trigger you to say, all right, I think you need to go back to your doctor and, and get some further investigations? So I think the clinical definition of heavy flow is over 80 mils. 
per period. And exactly like you, you mentioned, Leanne, um, having to change your pad or tampon every hour or more, um, having to change the pad or tampon overnight, what else producing clots a larger than a quarter, these kind of all fit under sort of the clinical definition of of a heavy flow. All right, then that brings me, I guess, into both of our favorite topics around food and nutrition. <laughs> How can we use food to support endometriosis? Are there any tips or tricks that you have that might help our listeners out at home? Absolutely. So despite the fact that we still need significantly more research in the space of endometriosis, there are a couple of hallmarks that have been identified in the literature. Um, And they're pretty well studied and pretty well understood. So we know we have that immune system dysfunction piece in endo, we know we've got that hormonal imbalance piece. So typically, you know, we see estrogen dominance and progesterone resistance in endo. And then we've got that inflammation piece, of course, because we've got this tissue that's in a, you know, a part of the body where it shouldn't be. So it's chronically stimulating that immune response. So with a large chunk of our immune system, and I know, Leanne, you know, this stuff really, really well as a gut health expert, a big chunk of our immune system is located in the gut. So a focus on nutrition for gut health, really optimizing that gut health, like for example, things like fermented foods, you know, our fermented dairy, our kombucha, our natto kimchi, uh, sauerkraut, cultured pickles. So focus on these things are prebiotic rich foods to help nourish those probiotics, right? Those, those live bacteria, jicama, Jerusalem artichokes, and then resistant starches, of course, too, which will really um, help to support our, our good gut bugs, our, our helpful little guys who really help boost nutrient absorption and production of anti-inflammatory chemicals, and really just supporting a nice, healthy environment in the gut. Those things are absolutely going to support immune system function, right? As opposed to dysfunction, they're really going to support um, a healthy immune system, which we want in endometriosis, because we do Mm. see that immune system dysfunction piece, hormonal balance, right? We know that certain foods impact how estrogen is cleared from the body. And unfortunately, this is another space that requires significantly more attention, because you may go to your doctor and get blood drawn, and then it'll show up as you know, your estradiol being normal, and then you leave the office or the, the lab, and you don't think twice about your estrogen. But we know that there's a lot more to estrogen metabolism and clearance from the body than just getting a blood draw that tells you your estradiol is normal. We produce three types of estrogen, and then they're cleared through three different phases. And there can be discrepancies at any phase along the way. And so, for example, uh, we know that charred meats, eating large amounts of, of charred meats, may slow that clearance of estrogen, right? So we may get slowed movement of estrogen through those three pathways, right? The 2-hydroxy, 4-hydroxy, 16-hydroxy. But that's a little bit of a detailed, uh, complicated subject area. So maybe if your audience responds well, we can return to that subject. But anyway, so it'll slow the way that estrogen is cleared through the liver, as well Mm -hmm. as things like alcohol, for example, right? So we know from the literature that alcohol will also slow how quickly uh, estrogen is detoxed through the liver. And then, you know, things like roasted peanuts, broccoli and mustard sprouts, as well as cauliflower, these types of foods are going to support 
that estrogen clearance pathway that is most desirable, right? So the one that's least estrogenic, it's not going to contribute as much to those pesky symptoms of breast tenderness and mood changes and headaches and cramping and inflammation and poor sleep. So those are great foods that we know support hormonal balance, you know, eating enough healthy fats and consuming all the cofactors needed to support a healthy ovulation. So things like omega-3s, magnesium, zinc, all the anti-inflammatory vitamins like vitamin A, D, E, and C, these are all going to support a healthy ovulation. So if you're supporting a healthy ovulation, we know that progesterone essentially sort of offsets the effects of estrogen. So we really want that healthy ovulation, right? We really want healthy progesterone. So those types of foods are going to be, you know, wonderful for supporting a uh, healthy hormones and hormonal balance, not just between estrogen and progesterone, but really all of the, the all of the hormones that we produce. And then we also know that cooking methods have a massive role to play in terms of inflammation and our omega six to three intake. So we know that some cooking methods will produce, you know, a bit more of those inflammatory free radicals. And then we also know that omega-6 to 3 intake, right? So I don't know what the ratio is like in Australia, but um, in North America, Mm -hmm. they're stating that it's about, you know, a 25 to 1 ratio between omega-6 to 3. And I think what's most desirable is around 4 to 1. So Mm. we as a nation as a cult, like we're, we're consuming significantly more omega-6s and, and naturally so because they're just significantly more available in our food supply to omega-3s. And this is resulting in over an, an overabundance, excuse me, of prostaglandins. And that's what's causing a lot of that cramping and inflammation and pain. So, and these are all things that can be controlled and supported with diet. Oh, I love it, Cynthia. I have about 40 different questions I want to ask you right now. But in terms of the big one was the omega-3. So trying to get that ratio reduced down so we're not having too much of those omega-6s. If somebody doesn't eat fish or salmon, are you a fan of adding omega-3s in as a supplement or really focusing on those um, flax seeds and linseeds? I really am, Leanne. And I don't know if you are aware of like the Institute of Functional Medicine, I'm going through that training program now because I'm just so fascinated in functional medicine. And, um, you know, so I did the immune module a couple months back and they were saying that, you know, no less than 1.5 grams is going to be even helpful for somebody with a chronic inflammatory condition. Three grams is ideal. And I like to focus on the high EPA because, we know there's some literature to suggest they're just a little bit better at at combating inflammation. And we know that that conversion, unfortunately, of those ALA, so the the plant-based sources of omega-3s are just not as good as the the marine sources. So I absolutely do support use of supplements, the the fish oils, and I get really great results with them for my patients. So um, there's a lot of truth to them being very important and very effective for calming inflammation. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much research around omega-3s, not only for endometriosis, but um, for lots of other health conditions as well. And I think it's such a again, under talked about topic, isn't it? How important just having, you know, two serves of fish or oily fish a week is because so many people that don't do it, or if they do do it, a real Aussie thing is having, you know, fish and chips by the water on a weekend or something like that. So what they're eating their fish in is covered in these like vegetable oils and it's deep fried and <laughs> it's packed full of salt. So it's probably not the, the most ideal way of getting fish in. So I really do like that you're open to using some supplements because they do have that research to support um, how helpful it is 
for endometriosis. Absolutely big fan. And some of those other things you mentioned, a lot of different types of nutrients. I would say that endometriosis isn't a time to start a restrictive diet because from what you were mentioning, you really do need to get in so many different types of nutrients and a diversity. Even when we think about our gut health, you know, more is better. Um, So how do you feel about a lot of people, I guess, restricting when it comes to endometriosis? Because there's a lot of misinformation online when it comes to nutrition. Cut this out, cut this out, cut this out. um, And it'll, you know, decrease your symptoms. What's the research telling us in this area? I can't imagine that you're a fan of actually restricting with people having so much going on with their diagnosis already. A hundred percent, Leanne. I feel like we're on the exact same page on this topic. We're dealing with chronic inflammation and our body needs tools to fight that inflammation. And those tools come from the nutrient-dense foods we eat. Additionally, with endo, when you're dealing with chronic pain, you know, you're not much in the mood to be on your feet for an hour or two preparing meals. Um, so you're already predisposed to not getting in good nutrition. You're already predisposed to cravings for higher carbohydrate foods, white refined carbohydrate, because naturally that's what your body's going to crave when you're going long periods of time without having something to eat. And then on top of that, you know, inconsistencies in the eating pattern. So there's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on in terms of the body really necessitating those nutrient dense foods. So I hear a lot about like dairy, for example, right? Dairy and endo, removing dairy and endo. And sure, like there are some people that are going to respond positively to removal of dairy and that's fine. Like I take an individualized approach with my clients. If dairy doesn't work for you, we'll find a way around it. We'll get those nutrients in. But the studies actually tell us that higher intakes of dairy come with reduced, like lower risks of developing endometriosis. So that's one thing we see in the literature. When you think about people with endo, and I kind of alluded to this already, the common vision that we have of a person with endo is somebody who, you know, is frequently under eating, is predisposed to eating a lot of those white, you know, refined carbohydrate rich foods. Uh, Because like I said, that's what the body wants when we go hours without having food. And then you have dairy, which is a beautiful nutrient dense food great source of protein, vitamin D, which we know is immune modulating and anti-inflammatory, probiotics, if you're picking cultured dairy, calcium, calories. So this is like a powerhouse food for somebody who is chronically under eating. Anyway, I think you know what I'm getting at. Um, (laughs) So we have to really kind of, we can't pick up foods, take them out of context and say they're they're bad for me or they're good for me. And I love that because again, as you mentioned, it has to be that individualized approach. If somebody chooses not to consume dairy because of ethical reasons, that's absolutely okay. If somebody chooses not to consume dairy because it's not available where they live or because they simply don't like the taste of it or because um, they actually feel like it, it makes their symptoms worse. Again, that's absolutely okay. But I love that you've just sort of put that myth to bed that we don't automatically have to exclude dairy straight away. The minute that we get an endodiagnosis because I feel like a lot of people you know, we get these debilitating health conditions or these diagnoses and the first thing is we do is we cut out all of these foods that perhaps online, you know, quote unquote, alternative health practitioners will say, you know, that causes inflammation, cut that out. So I really do like that you you explain that it can actually be quite helpful for a lot of people with endometriosis and not the, the opposite um, to what you might hear online sometimes. 
when we think of one food category, there are so many options. So for example, for somebody who maybe doesn't tolerate, you know, lactose very well, we can look to fermented dairy, or we can look to sources of dairy that have naturally lower lactose, like goat or sheep sources. So there's always a way, or I should say, sometimes there's a way to still include that food category, but maybe we're just being a bit more intentional about, you know, the specific foods that we're including uh, from that category. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. And that's a plug for dietitians and why it is so important to work one-on-one with registered dietitians or in Australia, we call it accredited practicing dietitians, because we do have so much knowledge and power in order to personalize our diets for our clients, don't we? Absolutely. I'm interrupting this podcast for a healthy break to share with you today's podcast sponsor, my friends at Kez's Kitchen, a proud family-owned business that started in 1991 in Kez's Kitchen here in Australia. Today, we're showcasing the Kez's Kitchen Brownie Bars, the perfect anytime snack made from natural ingredients, available in three delicious flavors, choc peppermint crunch, fudgy chocolate, and fudgy choc crunch. These all-natural and protein-boost bars taste ridiculously good, and I can personally vouch for them. Kez's Kitchen is a brand that I have loved and recommended to my clients for many years, as they're vegan, gluten-free, contain no artificial colors or preservatives, contain no refined sugar, and of course, are all-natural and Australian-made with fruits and nuts. The Kez's Kitchen Brownie Bars are available at all supermarkets in the health food aisle and also at kezs.com.au. That's K-E-Z-S dot Now let's get back to our conversation. And then while we're, I guess, in this space of talking about exclusions, where is the research pointing us between endometriosis and gluten-free? Um, is there any sort of research in this area? I know gluten for a lot of autoimmune uh, hormonal conditions is a big sort of quote unquote, no, no, from a lot of what you hear online. But again, like I love nothing more than, you know, a slice of mixed grain sourdough with my breakfast. Is it something that's okay to have if you have endometriosis? So this is the one space where there actually is a little bit of literature specifically in endo warriors. So there was one small study done that showed 75% of people with endometriosis did see improvements in symptoms with removal of gluten. Mm -hmm. However, the question I always come back to when it comes to this study is what kind of gluten containing foods were they consuming? Were they consuming white refined sources of gluten, you know, white breads, white pastas, all the processed goodies that we think of when we think of gluten containing foods, croissants, donuts, whatever. Or were they consuming whole food sources of gluten, like spelt and barley, right? It may be enough that you just change your focus from less of the white refined stuff and just include a little bit more of the whole food sources, sprouted versions, for example. And that may make a world of difference in terms of inflammation, pain, and other symptoms with endo. Mm, absolutely. And you hear it time and time again, people saying, um, you know, as dietitians, our clients say to us, I cut out gluten, I feel so much better. But as you mentioned, you look at the type of gluten they were eating and it's all that processed kind of like inflammatory foods anyway. It's packed full of sugar and trans fats and, you know, it's the biscuits and the cakes and the croissants, as you mentioned, and the donuts and the pastries. It's not the right type of whole grain gluten containing sources that we really ideally want to focus on for health. So I think you made a really, really important point there. It's not just that blood blanket. I can't eat any gluten. It's really the type um, that you're consuming, which is important. 
hundred percent. And that sort of brings us back to carbohydrates as well. You know, people say, I only lose weight when I eat a low carb diet. Um, and I guess that's the same with endometriosis. I'm sure you see a lot of the whole low carb keto in this area as well. From what you mentioned, one of the biggest things to support endometriosis was around gut health, which we know is actually including whole grain carbohydrates is so incredibly important. So I'm imagining that low carb or keto is a bit of a no-no for endometriosis? There is a right way to do the keto diet, right? I mean, you can pick those better sources of proteins and fats and, uh, you know, you can and should include more of those leafy greens and green veggies. But, you know, absolutely to your point, Leanne, I mean, we're looking for diversity when it comes to endometriosis. We're not looking to complicate your life more. We're not looking to restrict further. We know from the literature, and I think actually this is something I heard on your podcast when you were talking to a gut health specialist, which is around when we eat higher, you know, protein and fat diets, this is reflected in our gut flora. So we begin the flora basically changes to reflect that and we see more protein digesting bacteria. And those are the ones that are going to produce toxins and they may stimulate the bowel. So you're having more loose stools or uh, constipation and getting a bit more inflammation. So for that reason, we don't, I wouldn't particularly fancy the the keto diet. Um, And then there's a question of sustainability. Like when you decide I don't want to do keto anymore, what happens? Does your, do your symptoms come back? Do you feel overwhelmed with what to eat, what not to eat. So those are just some things to think about, right? And I am not a fan of restriction in any capacity. So whatever the intention is with doing the keto diet, I'm sure there's a a better, you know, maybe more sustainable, more endo-friendly way of going about it. But like I said, there's still a right way to do it. I would just say that if you are going to pursue it and you have endometriosis, please do work with a dietitian because it can be quite destructive when it comes to endometriosis, Mm. right? We want to be really particular about our nutrition with endo. So another little ad for uh, working with a dietitian. (laughs) Mm, Absolutely. And not just, you know, I think what dietitians are wonderful, but we all sort of have our own little areas of specialty. So I would really encourage our listeners, if you do have endometriosis, seek out somebody like Cindy who has that expert in this condition because Ditex is a very sort of cutthroat world, isn't it? There's there's a lot of people looking for a lot of new clients and a lot of times, I hate saying this, but dietitians will accept clients because they need clients, not because they're actually specialists in that area. So I am, hand on my heart, endometriosis is one of those conditions you do need the skills and experience in that area. And not only do you have that, Cindy, you actually have your own personal background and history with this disease as well. So I think that you're absolutely one of the experts in this area area. And if I ever had to refer clients, I would be looking for someone just like you who not only is a dietitian, but actually has that expert knowledge with this condition, because there's so much to know and learn about it. And I love the chat that we're having because I'm learning so much just from you today. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. I'm happy to hear that. Now, when we think about our health, Cindy, um, you would have heard me say on the podcast before, I always love to think about holistic health. So is there a holistic whole body approach that you recommend for endometriosis? We've talked a lot about nutrition, which is wonderful. You've mentioned how important mental health is. Is there anything else we need to think about when we think about a whole body approach to I guess, quote unquote, healing our endometriosis. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of, you know, using multiple therapies, if that's something that's, you know, feasible for you in terms of resources. So I do find that I get the best results. And I do find a lot of my clients get the best results when they are using multiple therapies. So not just nutrition, but 
also maybe doing acupuncture or massage or pelvic floor PT, which is, I think, especially important with endo because when you get those muscles in, in the pelvic region tightening up as a response to inflammation and pain, you know, they are also, I guess, strengthening those muscles in a sense. And so you get this imbalance in the muscles in that area and that can further perpetuate uh, pain in that area. So love pelvic floor PT for that nutrition. And we know that movement is immune modulating and uh, great for mental health. So definitely a big fan of you know, other approaches don't just do one thing. If if it's an option for you to see, you know, a pelvic floor PT or an acupuncturist or a dietitian, you're going to get better results. But I recognize that that's not feasible for everybody. Mm. I guess something that when I think about holistic health that most people can work on without sort of spending too much money would be something like their sleep or their stress levels. Do those two things have an impact on endometriosis? Is Are they important? Oh my goodness, of course. <laughs> so for example, we know that, you know, stress has a big role to play with blood sugar regulation, right? And our cortisol levels. And one of the main jobs of our of, of cortisol is blood sugar regulation. And that's just one additional thing that can contribute inflammation with endo, right? And we already have all these predispositions as a disadvantage uh, in terms of specific cravings for refined carbohydrate and pain preventing, you know, quality sleep, which in turn affects, you know, ghrelin and leptin levels. So hunger, satiety hormones. So absolutely. But, you know, Leanne, it's really complicated because endo does unfortunately affect those, those spaces, right? A lot of people complain of poor sleep because they're in chronic pain. So how do you deal with that? Right. And then you're not getting good sleep. And so you're waking and you're reaching for the first croissant or donut or whatever that you can think of, because that's what you're craving because your ghrelin and leptin levels are all over the place. And then, you know, you're tired, so you don't have the energy to move your body, right, for example, and then it's just this vicious cycle. So I know the feeling very well of how overwhelming it can be when you have endo, and just really managing all these moving pieces. So back to my, I guess, original comment around the holistic approach and and using other therapies, you know, rely on those, do your best. I mean, start with one thing at a time, because endo also often affects multiple different realms, I guess, of health. So it can affect your gut health, your hormone health, your your sleep, your appetite, um, which can be very overwhelming. And I have a lot of people approach me about this and ask, like, where do I even start? One thing at a time, one thing at a time, right? Mm. Um, and hopefully, as that one space sort of improves, uh, it'll kind of spill over into the other domains, and you'll see improvements there as well. Mm, absolutely. I can imagine that it's just completely overwhelming. And as you mentioned, like you don't even know where to start for some people. But let's talk about pain, um, Cindy, because I think that that's probably one of the biggest, almost debilitating symptoms that would hold so many sufferers back is just being in that constant chronic pain. I mean, when you're in pain, you you really can't do anything. And who's going to blame someone for reaching for a croissant if that's the the only thing they feel like or want when they're in this, this terrible pain all the time. So do you have any, you know, painkillers are one thing, but natural sort of pain relief options? Are there anything that um, endometriosis warriors can do from a natural pain relief perspective? Yeah, so there are a few evidence-based options for natural pain relief. Um, and these have actually all been studied specifically in endo warriors. Mm. So uh, curcumin is a great one. So you can do a curcumin supplement or you can do like something like golden milk often, or just adding it to your cooking, right? We don't know exactly how 
the ratios compare in terms of adding some some turmeric to your to your cooking versus taking like a like a concentrated supplement, but it certainly wouldn't hurt, right? Um, the one space I'd say just be mindful of curcumin or turmeric is if you have interstitial cystitis, which is common with endo because it can't irritate the bladder a little bit, but otherwise a very effective um, supplemental support. Heat is a big one. I know heat is my best friend when I'm having a bad pain day. The water can't get any hotter in the bathtub. So heat is great. <laughs> and then alpha lipoic acid is a good one that's been studied in uh, endo. Bromelain as well, right? Um, dietary change, right? I alluded to this previously, all the great things we can do with diet in terms of natural pain relief, optimizing those omega-6 to 3s, supporting the hormonal balance, gut health. Um, serapeptase is a great one too. So this is an enzyme isolated from silkworm. Great, especially following surgery. So if you're somebody who's had a laparoscopy recently, uh, it's a great supplement to consider. Um, but please mm -hmm. do always, you know, work with somebody and, and make sure that it's right for you with any supplement, really. N-acetylcysteine, so NAC is a big one, and it's well-studied um, specifically for endometriomas. So there is quite a bit of literature around reducing endometriomas with NAC. Um, it's also like a power antioxidant, right? So it recycles all of the other antioxidants we consume, either supplementally or in diet, right? So it's great for that. It's needed for estrogen metabolism. So it's a wonderful supplement in that sense. And then a big one is cannabis, right? Cannabis can be really helpful for some uh, in terms of managing pain, better sleep, um, may help with improvements in appetite as well. So those are my go-to sort of natural pain relief options. Mm, and I think you're the first expert we've had on this podcast mentioned cannabis. I love it. <laughs> and that just is really just the the parts of the world that we live in in Australia. We have very, very strict rules and regulations um, around cannabis um, mm. use and even in, in, you know, products with oils and creams and that sort of thing. We're sort of not allowed them here. So we're a little bit behind, I guess, where America is in terms of cannabis use. But I'm, you know, I'm supportive of it from a pain relief perspective. Absolutely. I think it's, it's quote unquote legal to use if you have something like end stage cancer and it's prescribed by your doctor. But unfortunately, a lot of these really, really debilitating health conditions, it's not accessible for, for Aussies to use that. So I really do hope that we sort of catch up with the rest of the world in terms of offering some of these more natural, I guess, pain relief options. Yeah, I hope so. It's legal here. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very accessible. <laughs> yeah. I've had people message me all the time and say, you, you know, you don't promote or you don't, you know, and I said, it's simply just the country that we live in. Yeah. We, um, we do, we have very, very strict rules and regulations over here. I think only, it was only maybe a year or two ago, we actually allowed, um, hemp seeds we couldn't get oh, really? hemp seeds in food until up until maybe a year or a year and a half ago yeah it was oh completely banned and if people were importing them in it had these big labels on the packets of the boxes saying not for human consumption um so i'm sure people were still importing them and and, and putting them on the cereals or in their smoothies anyway but they had these big label you know labels across them saying you know not allowed for human consumption so we're a little bit behind in that respect <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Wow. Well, I mean, hey, if you're listening to the episode and you're in Australia, I've given you a couple of other options. You don't have to rely on cannabis. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. And then I would love to finish our podcast today, Cindy, really talking about um, endometriosis and infertility. You mentioned it's a uh, Again, it must be an area that so many people struggle with and it must just be absolutely heartbreaking. So do you have any tips for our ladies that are trying to 
conceive or that are struggling with infertility or that are even just worried about it you know maybe they're in their young 20s and they're they're thinking about it but it's causing them concern is there anything that they can do even if they're a bit younger there they don't want children right away is there anything they can do to support themselves for you know the future that was kind of like a two-part question so I guess I'll give like a brief answer (laughs) to to both but um, really identifying your cause which can absolutely be difficult with endo right is it that you've got you know, just a significant amount of inflammation? Is it related to ovulatory disorders? Like maybe the inflammation is preventing ovulation, or maybe you're having a weak ovulation, maybe your progesterone is really low. Um, Is it related to hormonal imbalances, right? We know that we need progesterone to sustain a pregnancy, Uh, estrogen can act as an abortant. So um, really having a look at those uh, hormones and and balancing them out as, as best as you can, and then looking at the immunity. So really looking at the gut health, supporting the gut health, variety in plants, resistant searches, pre and, probi- uh, pre and probiotic rich foods, excuse me, you know, thinking about those cofactors that I previously mentioned as they relate to ovulation, really making sure that you're getting a nice variety in your diet. If you're not, um, I'm a big fan of a, of a nice, complete multivitamin uh, or a prenatal mm-hmm. for those. Um, if you're pursuing assisted reproductive technologies, make sure you're working with somebody who, you know, is well-educated and informed um, in special protocols for endo. I am not at all a specialist in in this space in particular when it comes to, to the meds, but I do believe that they are ones that don't rely on estradiol, but the ones that do support, you know, promoting ovulation. Um, hydration is always important, right, for for healthy cervical mucus and supporting um, fertility, antioxidants for egg quality and reducing inflammation. So, you know, the vitamin A, C, E, D, selenium, these are all anti- antioxidants. Um, and then nitric oxide rich veggies to promote that uh, circulation of uh, oxygen to the reproductive organs. So things like pomegranate juice, celery, cabbage, beetroot, parsley, these are all great. For somebody who's just kind of thinking about their fertility, you know, all these things apply, lots of variety, diversity in your diet, particularly if you do have an endometrioma. Uh, and this is really kind of outside of dietetics, really, but you could consider egg freezing if that's an option for you. This is something that's very popular, very common with endo, because unfortunately, um, endometriomas can affect egg quality. Um, especially when you're you're very young, right? So um, something to consider in your younger years if you're not, you know, looking to grow your family right away. And yeah, always just keeping on top of the diversity, the gut health, the hormone health, the inflammation as best as you can. So really all the things that we've kind of been talking about in the podcast today will be helpful for um, supporting fertility. Mm, wonderful. And there's been a little bit of talk, I guess, in terms of fertility and seed cycling. Do you have any opinions on that? I mean, as far as I would recommend, I, I don't think adding extra seeds into your diet is going to be detrimental to anyone. I'm all for that. I think seeds are a wonderful addition to your health. Is there much, I guess, research from the fertility space in seed cycling or is it something you get asked about quite a bit? You know, Leanne, as far as I know, there is no evidence-based info you know, to suggest seed cycling is is really key for fertility, but I'm in agreement with you. There's no harm in adding nuts and seeds to your diet. It's definitely a goal I work on with my, with my clients. I love them. Uh, Great source of plant-based omega-3s, great for fiber, healthy fat. So they're great to include in the diet, but do you have to seed cycle for fertility right now? There's not, there's not any evidence about you know, of that, I should say. And then Cindy, I guess to end this podcast, we talked a little bit before about sort of the mental health aspect and just that overwhelmed feeling where someone might be listening and thinking, oh my goodness, Cindy gave me so much advice, but I don't even know where to start. Like I'm in so much pain each day. I can't do a thing. 
For our listeners at home who may be struggling with that just overwhelmed feeling, maybe they've just been diagnosed, maybe they don't know how to ask for help, what are two or three top things that you would recommend for somebody that might have the biggest impact on their endometriosis journey? Sorry, endometriosis journey. (laughs) What would be your top two to three areas that you would recommend most people start with? So something that's going to be very impactful is regular structured meals. Now, if you're on the other side of this podcast listening to me say that, you're probably like, Cindy, you already said how much, you know, how many barriers are in place for somebody with endometriosis in terms of having regular structured meals. So I want to challenge you to plan one to two easy to assemble meals for breakfast one to two easy to assemble meals for lunch, one to two easy to assemble meals for dinner. And make sure you always have those items in your pantry or in your freezer so that it does simplify that process for you. They don't have to be complicated. If you're somebody who's skipping meals, you know, have something, start there. You know, if you're having nothing, go from having nothing to having an orange or a fruit or a piece of cheese. Just some kind of structure in the eating is going to make a massive difference in terms of blood sugar control, which is really the foundation for managing inflammation, supporting gut health and hormone health. Plants, lots and lots of plants, right? We've alluded to this multiple times in this podcast the more color in your diet and the more diversity in the plant foods in your diet, there's going to be more of that diversity in your gut health, right? Plants are your friends and omega-3s. And the last thing I really want to say is do not feel guilty if you need to rely on pain relief or some kind of prescription medication. I hear this a lot from endo warriors. You're living with a debilitating chronic pain disease. If you have to take pain relief, don't even think twice about it do it. You have to do what's best for you. Don't feel guilty about it. Know you're not alone. Know you're supported. I hear you. I see you. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And there is that little bit of almost that shame in wanting or relying on pain medication, I think. So I love that that was your your final point, I guess, to bring it home for everyone that you're not weak. You didn't fail if you need pain relief. It's just such a debilitating health condition that you need to do to just get by. And as you mentioned, there are so many moving parts that, oh man, if you can just control that pain perspective, you could put together some of those other moving parts if you're not in that chronic constant pain. So I'm 100% on board with you as well. I really do think that pain relief, whether natural or fully medicated, um, has a time and a place. And I think for something like endometriosis, it can be so helpful for so many people in order for them to be able to connect some of those other moving parts, as you mentioned. Absolutely. And then I'm going to throw one last question at you, Cindy, to really (laughs) take all of that knowledge out of you. In terms of, um, I guess, like a lot of people will be thinking about all of the nutrients you mentioned, trying to put that together into a type of food. Could you give us a great example of a a great breakfast option for an endo warrior, a good lunch option, and maybe like a simple dinner option? doesn't have to be exact meals, but just just an example to help people connect those dots between real food and the nutrients that you've mentioned. So it could be something as simple as you know, a slice of, you know, either gluten-free or some kind of sprouted toast with an avocado and an egg. I'm such a big fan of eggs. I'm obsessed with them. They lack only one (laughs) nutrient. It's a powerhouse food. They're fantastic. If you need something a little bit quicker, maybe some uh, peanut butter with a banana on toast, maybe sprinkle some of those hemp seeds Leanne was (laughs) talking about earlier. (laughs) For lunch, a huge fan of something like a chickpea salad. You can make uh, larger portions and and enjoy it over several days. So, you know, chickpeas with some colorful veggies, um, peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, red onion, cheese of your choice, feta cheese, 
um, and a homemade dressing. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail about that, but if you want the recipe for the dressing, hit me up on Instagram. <laughs> Ooh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, for dinner. I, it's actually, it's a recipe I have on there. So um, if you come over and see me there, you'll find that recipe for the chickpea salad. Huge fan of that. And then um, for dinner, it could be some salmon, like a walnut crusted salmon, for example, with some quinoa and some some veg, some broccoli, some cauliflower, maybe a mix of both. And those are just some of the little pieces of what we of what we might think, excuse me, as the Mediterranean diet, which is mostly what I follow with my clients with some slight tweaks here and there. But those are just some, you know, just some examples off the top of my head uh, in terms of what might work. Mm, I love it. And for our listeners at home, we actually did a whole episode with um, Sophie on the Mediterranean diet as well. If you're sitting there listening and thinking, oh, I wonder what that is. We have an episode <laughs> just a few episodes back um, after Cindy's one or before Cindy's one, I should say, around um, the Mediterranean diet. So that brings us to the end of our podcast today, Cindy. I am so thankful to have had you on and for all of your expert knowledge, please tell our listeners where they can um, reach out to you. Do you do online consultations? Is it just in America? Do you offer them worldwide? Websites, social medias, um, give us all of your details so our listeners can chase you down and get some more knowledge out of you. (laughs) So my Instagram handle is endo.fertility.dietitian with a T, not a C. Mm -hmm. And our website is endometriosisdietitian.ca. I do work with people worldwide. So I do have some Australian clients, people from Europe, Canada, USA. So absolutely. And I think that answered all your questions, right? So that's where you can find me. Would love to connect with each and every one of you. Um, We have a beautiful community on my Instagram page, um, many like-minded people. So we'd love to uh, have you over there and uh, always open to chatting and connecting. I know how uh, lonely endo can be. I live with it myself. So happy to connect with uh, anybody who would like to connect with me. Thank you so much, Cindy. And we'll make sure that we link your socials in the show notes as well. So people can directly go to your socials and and give you a quick follow, which is great as well. And you do have so many wonderful resources and infographic type posts on your socials. So everybody absolutely go and check out Cindy's socials. They they are wonderful and very um, packed full of knowledge, whether or not you have endo or whether it's somebody that a loved one um, has it so you can help to support them a little bit better as well. I think that in this day and age, we all know at least somebody who who sort of has been diagnosed with endometriosis and I think knowledge is power so the more we can either help ourselves or help our loved ones I think the better you know we're going to function as a society overall so definitely go and check out Cindy's socials (laughs) thank you so much again for coming on this podcast it's been a pleasure likewise thanks for having me Leanne